I believe that children are our future. Teach them well, help them lead the way. Show them all the beauty they possess inside. Give them a sense of pride to make it easier. Let the children's laughter remind us how we used to be. Hi, and welcome to our 100th podcast episode um, from all of us here at the FSF and Tapestry. To celebrate, we thought we would get the whole education team together. That's Ben, Anya, Jack, Steve and Helen and me, Jules, and look back at some of our memorable moments. Um, there have been many, way too many to fit into one podcast, but here are just some that have stayed with us. And Ben, you're going to start us off. Yeah, I mean, as you say, there's just been so many amazing guests that we've had over the, the time that we've been doing podcasts and to reach 100 is quite an impressive feat, I think. Um, and I mean, I wanted to start with the Action Action Jackson song because it, first of all, I mean, when he started singing, that just surprised us. And it was just such a great way to start that podcast. Um, but also that whole podcast itself was about giving power to the individual to believe in themselves. And that's what he's all about. And I know that I came away from that conversation and from listening to that podcast, um, feeling more empowered to believe in myself. Um, and just, I think so many people get that from him as well, but, um, that's not actually the podcast that I've chosen to go with. Um, I've decided to uh, choose one with Jamal, um, which was again, one of our early ones, I think. And he, he talks about um, the sort of early years being the jewel in the community or the crown of the community, I think. And for me, it was just like one of those light bulb moments where representation and the links between settings and home were so important. So I just thought we'd just listen to a little bit of what Jamal had to say. I remember when I worked, the first nursery I worked in was a short start nursery, um, Russia Green Nursery. And I remember at first I was a little nervous because the children were so small, you know, but, and then I realised, like, when a few of the parents came in, there were parents from the area. So it was like, oh, you're right, what are you doing it? You're working it, yeah? Oh, that's really good. Could you work with my son? Could you work with my daughter? Can you this, that? Can you help them to? And because, they, you know, when you've got those relationships, it just shows the true value of a nursery. You know, nurseries are important and, and they should be part of, of the, commun the communities, as I said, um, fabric, the fabric of the community, just like the butchers, just like the bakers, just like your local mechanic, just like, you know, the, the local vendors on the street, you know, we are, we're, we're a part of it. And, and, you know, having those good relationships, those positive relationships and, and that connectivity, you know, like the relate, a bit like, people are able to relate to you and, and understand that this is the person that comes from the area, you know, that you can see this person in Tesco's, you can see this person down the road and they're helping me. You know, a lot of the time children go into settings not, and, and the environment is unfamiliar. The environment is, is, is so different to, to the, their home situation and it can be a daunting thing for the parents and the child, you know, and, I think that, that whole community vibe just brings it home. You come into a setting, you're hearing music um, from your environment, you're, you're seeing faces from your community, you're, you're seeing, you're smelling food that you would have had at home, you're seeing pictures or books and, and things like that. So, yeah, com the community, well, 
the nursery is a hub. Yeah. You know, the nursery is a hub. And it's, it's such an important, um, undervalued jewel in, in our community's crown, you know? Okay, now I think we're going to head over to Anya, who's uh, going to talk about her favourite podcast. Um, yeah, so mine was the one that I did with Jules and Sonia Mainstone Cotton. Um, it was the second podcast that I've done, and it just left me with so much to reflect on. Um, it was really impactful for me. And if you, I'm going to play a different clip, but um, if you haven't listened to the last question, I would really recommend that. It literally gave me chills. It was, it, you know, the things that she shared were really beautiful. Um, so here's the clip. So I think, I mean, when I started my early years degree, my goodness, 15 years ago, probably when I did that, um, the understanding of brain development was, was kind of just coming on board. It wasn't, so when I did my NNEB years ago, when I was 16 to 18, brain development was not really there at all. Um, and then when I, years later, as a mature student, did my, did my early years degree and then MA, it was, it was a, there was a greater understanding. And that's just grown and grown, hasn't it? And I think, for me, it's about trying to, um, trying to understand how, how the baby's brain works and what impact we have as practitioners and as parents. So the whole... Um, recognizing that a child the feelings and emotions that a child is going through and how we can name that and that's really helpful for them I think that's really important that we embed a good emotional language from birth again I think that's really really vital um, but also recognizing that when a two and a half year old is having an absolute tantrum this isn't a chosen thing this isn't about or even a four-year-old having a meltdown. This isn't about them intentionally choosing to be naughty, which is what we sometimes heard. And that's not a phrase I would use, but that's sometimes what we hear. But actually, it's about a child going into that complete dysregulation where their brain is going back to those really early development limbic systems of that fight and flight. And you've asked them to do something, they feel massively threatened and they go into fight and flight and they have an explosion. And no part of their thinking brain is working. So they're kicking off. Now, the reason why it's important for us to have an understanding of the brain development is if you don't have that understanding, you could look at that child and think they're two years old and they're intentionally having a massive tantrum on me because they are being really naughty or they want, they, they think if they do this, then they're going to get their way and they're not. Now, the problem with that, if you don't have a good understanding of the brain development is you're seeing them in a real deficit model for a start. You're, you're not understanding what's going on for the child. And it's all going to end in tears for everybody. <laughs> you know, already has ended in tears for the child. It's not going to be great for you either. So why do I think we need to have an understanding of brain development? It's because it helps us as practitioners and parents be better. So I chose this clip because it really made me reflect on my experiences in education as both um, a child in school, um, a teacher, and most importantly, um, my role as a one-to-one -one support for children with SEMH needs. Um, as Sonia says, there's still a huge gap in our understanding of brain development and how that is taught or not taught to those working with children. Um, 
and how an understanding of brain development enables us to support the children we work with by considering what might be going on for them and knowing um, what language or action could support them to be regulated. Um, but not only that, I think it was really important to, like Sonia said, to, as adults, understand brain development because it can help us shift the blame from the child to not think that they are being naughty or acting out, but having that understanding to help us separate the behaviour from them um, and help us to sort of not take that on and just understand that they just maybe don't have the ability because they've not had that support, they've not had the emotional language. Um, and as Sonia says at the very end, that having an understanding of brain development just helps us as practitioners and parents be better. And I think I'm handing over to Jack, is it? Okay, um, for my podcast, I chose the one we did with Miriam Moss, who among other things is a, a children's author. Um, I chose this one for a bunch of reasons. Firstly, because Miriam is just an incredibly charming and lovely person to speak to. Uh, she was one of our like very first guests that we had on to the podcast. So previous to this, it was it was a bit like this one where the education team would just get together and we would talk about different things and our own experiences. And then we started inviting all these lovely people onto the podcast and we've met so many nice people through it. It's just been really good. So this was one of the, the really early ones we did. Um, Secondly, it was about something that personally I'm very interested in, creative writing and becoming an author and things like that. So that was just a, a selfish reason why I'm really excited to be part of this one. Um, and the clip you're about to hear is, is about uh, is Miriam talking about running um, writing workshops for children. Um, and when we were having this conversation, it really made me reflect on my own time as being a teacher, which is which is always really nice. And uh, it reminded me of the joy of teaching writing, which was my favorite subject to teach, definitely. Um, and there's loads of other really good clips in this podcast um, about, you know, Miriam talks about her own personal process of writing and um, the relationship she has with her illustrators and the joy of words and attitudes towards reading. And there's loads of stuff. So I'd really recommend listening to the whole thing. Um, but we're just going to listen to this short clip and I hope you enjoy. School, when I do writing workshops in schools, I always say at the very beginning, this is uh, nobody not even the teacher, um, is going to look over your shoulder. Mm -hmm. Because I think they must be, um, the children and students need to feel relaxed and completely in their writing. Yeah. And not feeling as though they've got to worry about it. So grammar goes out of the window. Yeah. Yes. Um, so the sentences, it doesn't matter. I say to them, do you really think when I start writing something that I'm worried about whether I put a capital letter at the beginning. This is just get it down. And it's um and I know that's um maybe sound slightly radical. In in, in this particular culture now, yeah. it certainly wasn't when I was teaching. It was exactly how you did it because most of writing is editing. Do you when you do that in, in classes, do you see the teachers in the back yeah, of the classroom crying into their hands? <laughs> no, don't tell them that. I don't do capital lesson full stops yeah. for the next six years. Uh, or spelling. Or spelling. No, I agree with it first with them. Yeah. And I think they you know, sometimes they find it really difficult not to wander around, not yeah, to help. Is, yeah, yeah. And um one teacher said to me, she actually went out of the classroom and she said, This is the hardest thing I've ever, ever done. Because what you're doing is to some extent removing the teacher from what means that their absolute instinct is mm. to and quite rightly so yeah. but with creative writing it's 
um, it, it's that whole idea of being self-contained yeah. and not the most important thing, which is the thing that um, I also do, is not to be interrupted. So I do the workshop so that children are absolutely... Uh, uh, they have. They don't have to ask anybody anything. So they draw first. So they have all the information there first, and then they write from their drawing. They know they don't have to ask for a rubber. <laughs> um, and as they do this last the writing part, um, I say to them, writers look out of the window. They look around the room, mm. and we practice doing all of that mm -hmm. kind of thing. And um, that 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 actually sitting and thinking is all about writing too. And I don't know who I'm moving on to. That'll be me. Oh, and then I'm going to pass over to Helen. <laughs> Thank you, Jack. I will take the baton in this podcast relay. In the light of the recently announced new leadership qualification, which is called, I believe, the MPQEYL, standing for National Professional Qualification in Early Years Leadership, that was recently announced, which is going to be available from OP. To reflect on the previous leadership qualifications that have been around over the last 20 or so years, and in particular the EYPS programme, which I was a part of, which I thought was excellent, and then that was followed by EYTS and, and a few others. Although these were graduate opportunities, and the new MPQ is for level threes in the PBI sector, those qualities that we want in our earliest leaders remain the same, I think, so I've chosen an excerpt from the chat Jack and I had with Annie Richardson, who is senior lecturer in early years at the University of Brighton. We talked amongst other things about the value of being a reflective leader. And we asked Annie what challenges her students face as they enter the early years sector and what advice she gives them. I think probably the biggest challenge is them staying in sector. And that sounds a bit strange, but sadly, as I think I said before, what we see is more and more is that um, graduates gain their qualification and they leave for better paying conditions. Um, and I'm not there as a lecturer to stop their aspirations to move on and, and go into different things, not at all, because people need to follow that sort of direction when they meet a signpost you know and they sort of decide which direction they're going to to take and that's my job as well really and to support them in that um however i think what we try to instill is a passion and curiosity for early childhood um what we try and get them to see is the important part they play as sort of brain builders and play partners and communicators and listeners and enablers and advocates and co-constructors and learning and development all of that rich stuff um, so if they don't feel that that um, the role that they do can give them that they need to move on but if they feel that they have uh, the hunger for that then we need them in the early childhood sector. And so quite often, my last piece of advice to them is to believe in themselves, <laughs> um, to believe that they can make a difference in children's lives um, as they take on all of those different sorts of roles um, and that they continue to um, learn, um, to reflect 
um, always with an open heart and an open mind. Um, and I think that's what I, I try and instill in them, you know, that real confidence in their own voice. Um, I think that's the main thing. So I really love the way Annie talked about the challenge of staying in the sector, but the importance of, of practitioners and teachers being brain builders, play partners. I love those phrases she used there, and especially co-constructors of learning, which she talks about in that clip. Um, and she advises her students to believe in themselves. Again, a fantastic phrase she used was to work with an open heart and mind, which sometimes we find difficult at times, and, and to really believe that they can make a difference. So she had, um, she encourages them to have confidence in their own voice, which I thought was, was inspirational. So I really loved that podcast with Annie. I'm going to pass over to Stephen now for his choice. Thank you, Helen. My choice is a podcast that myself and Jules recorded a few months ago with Kerry Payne. Um, and the subject of that podcast was CPD and how it has potentially changed the sort of notion of CPD since the pandemic began. I also thought this was quite a relevant choice um, in advance of our upcoming Tapestry Education Conference. So I'm going to play the clip now uh, where we're chatting to Kerry about the potential for practitioners to actually reject the CPD that they take part in. Yeah, for sure. And I think um, we had this conversation a few weeks ago, didn't we, around you can reject the CPD that you attend. So part of your pedagogy is um, having the autonomy to say, well, I went, went to this training course and actually it doesn't fit in with um, the setting, the children I work with, uh, the ethos of, of you know what I follow. And I um, did some work with James from Nursery Nook and he designed like a training quality form for me because I was like, actually, we almost say to practitioners, if you get access to a training because we know access to CPD is few and far between or, or was prior to the pandemic, it's almost like be grateful for it use it and apply it but actually practitioners need to be able to say to their managers to their colleague colleagues actually I went to this training course and it, it it was you know not fit for purpose for these reasons so I think as long as you can justify why you might be rejecting a, a particular idea and I think if we think about the EYFS reforms, for example, um, which is always kind of tense territory at the moment, but, you know, everyone's describing our sector as contested and we're all debating and, and arguing, fighting over what is best for children. And sometimes I think we view that negatively. But what I see is a sector of passion. We don't just accept things as is. The facts that we're seeing um, people challenge each other's pedagogies, as long as it doesn't become personal, I think that that's a really powerful thing because that for me says, we're still showing up for our children and we want the best for them. So we have to, we have to really um, critically think about what is best and that does include some of those contested elements. So, you know, I know the EYFS reforms has been stressful for people but I think the positive of that is that we're not a sector that just goes right here's a prescribed curriculum or a framework let's just put it into practice and again that one size fits all it speaks to that again and I think there's this idea particularly with the way our qualifications are designed that that we create a pre-packaged practitioner that we can just you know a bit like the sims we just 
put them into place and expect them to go. And it's like, no, if we're going to inspire our children to be um, critical thinkers, to be motivated, to be engaged, um, to really think divergently, our adults need to be able to do that as well. Um, and I think as a trainer, and as a lecturer, what I've learned, and I have had some really scary moments where my students have challenged me and I've kind of immediately started sweating, but actually had to acknowledge and say to them, I am not the fountain of knowledge in this room. Together we're a network of voices. So I think removing also that hierarchy of, of specialism in the sense of, as a trainer, being open to learning from practitioners, because that's where the, like, I speak to practitioners and that's where I get my knowledge from, you know. They might see me as the trainer and the specialist, but my knowledge comes directly from them. I think a word that I've heard already on this podcast is reflect. And I think some of the most powerful podcasts that we have recorded as a team have been the ones that make you reflect, but also potentially make your heart sink a little bit and make you think, oh, I wish I'd done that a bit differently. And obviously we can only know what we know at a given time. But when Kerry talks about the sort of idea that we want to create, we want our staff to be critical thinkers, just as we want to inspire our children to be critical thinkers. And I know as a leader, I would, one of my responsibilities was to book staff onto CPD and if I could go back in time and consider that again, I think I would do things differently. One thing in particular that links to what Kerry has said, and I think a lot of places do this, was that I would ask the member of staff who was returning for some, from some training to, to give me three things that they were going to implement following the training that they had attended. And that obviously goes against everything that Kerry's just said, that well, what if the training was not in line with the pedagogy of the school or the pedagogy of the individual or just wasn't particularly relevant, are we still sort of insisting that there's going to be something good that you heard yesterday on that training? So I think that is something that's quite powerful. The other thing really is it made me think about how do we decide what we as practitioners are going to be doing about our own CPD? Is it linked to some performance management target or is it the senior leader who's actually choosing the CPD that you are going to take part in? So I think these are really big discussions and hopefully we'll be able to address some of this in the conference that's coming up. But um, it was very thought provoking the, the time that we spent with, with Kerry. I'm going to hand over to Jules now, who's going to finish up with the last clip. Thanks, Stephen. Um, I chose a podcast recording that Ben and I did. Um, way back in, it would have been August or September 2020. And it was a podcast episode with Liz Pemberton and David Kahn. And I chose this podcast because, well, for me personally, it came, from it came the blessing of many more conversations with Liz, for which I have so much gratitude. Um, and I also chose it because it really shows the power of a conversation, um, which is true everywhere and true for us as a team. Um, in our work that we do, we are so lucky to make connections with so many interesting people um, through podcasts and, and all sorts of other ways as well. And they have a massive impact on our own learning. Um, and the power of 
this conversation was the anti-racism journey. It began for us as a team, um, one that should have already been happening and one that is ongoing. Um, it was really hard to find one clip to play here. Um, for example, I could have chosen um, the part where David reminds us that white people can say, oh, the racism is out there, it, it isn't about me. Um, and actually in a recent article, Liz says, anti-racist practice is for all of us. Um, what I chose is a clip quite near the beginning where Liz actually talks about the need to have these conversations. Um, is not, uh, it's not impolite to talk about racial difference. It's very important. It's not impolite to talk about cultural difference. It's very important. And when these kinds of conversations are happening, we need to understand the impacts practice, the impacts teaching, the impacts um, <sighs> assumptions, it, it impacts, you know, even expectations about what children are going to achieve, depending on what racial group they are a part of because we cannot be living in a racist society and assume that the school environment is not racist it's a very dangerous assumption but it's a comfortable assumption for um, white people to sit in and say well I don't experience that or I've never seen anything we are still very early on in the conversation around defining what racism is and really having an upfront conversation about that as a society as a country um, and so if we are not even clear about wanting to define what racism is, how can we identify what racism actually looks like in the classroom? So those are all our podcast memorable moments um, that we've chosen for this 100th episode. Um, thank you all so much for listening. Um, whether you're a new listener or have been listening for a while, um, we hope you enjoy our podcast conversations and that you learn with us.